if I am more than usually obscure this evening, then do just please pray for me. But can we all pray together now? Heavenly Father, we thank you that uh, your word is clear. That you've not set out to confuse or to give us words that we struggle uh, to apply. You want us to live in your word. And we pray that despite the difficulties I've had uh, this afternoon, there would be clarity as we understand your word. And understanding it, how we then seek to allow it to make a difference in the days that lie before us, in the world that we will return to tomorrow, and in the days after that. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I, uh, I don't know whether you are fond of any of the crime dramas that fill our screens these days. Um, how many of you have ever seen an episode of CSI? It's a television programme. Thank you. It's obviously the front has seen CSI. I'm not quite sure what that, should, what that means. The front of church has seen CSI, that, the less of the back less. Um, uh, it's, a, it's a crime show. Um, but such is its impact that I gather now researchers have discovered that American juries are taking the watching of CSI into account as they produce verdicts in American courtrooms. They expect the same quality of insight and aha-ism from the police forces and the prosecutors uh, in the real-life courtroom as they are used to seeing uh, on this television show. And if the, po the police and the prosecutors don't come up with this same standard of amazing insight at the right and key moment, then apparently the juries are punishing the prosecutors and bringing in uh, verdicts of not guilty because the, the prosecutors didn't make their case as solidly and uh, convincingly as they do on CSI. That is the power of crime drama in our culture. So I wanted, of course, in, with the light of discovering that this week, to open up Romans 9 to you as though it were a crime drama. Romans 9 is, is like one of those pictures that you see, of the, the, the kind of chalk or taped outline of the body on the floor. You know something has happened, but you're not entirely sure what. And what I want us to do is go through Romans 9 and to see it as though it were part of uh, a crime scene investigation. And it has uh, within it four key elements. It has witness, it has fact, it has charges, and then it has a verdict. And we're going to begin with the witness. You can tell it's a witness because look how it starts. It actually, Paul is taking an oath to tell the truth. Page 1135. I speak the truth in Christ, I am not lying. What I'm about to tell you is the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. But as so often happens with uh, a witness report, it takes a while for us to understand entirely what it is that's gone on. There is an event has happened. And from Paul's point of view, this event clearly is that, it seems, his own people of Israel have been cut off from God. 
and it horrifies him. Such is his love, such is his personal relationship with his own people, that he can actually swap it around and say, actually, I wish I myself were a curse. I wish I was cut off for their sake, for the sake of my brothers, those of my own race, the people of Israel. And then he lists the privileges that belong to this people. The adoption of sons, the divine glory, the covenants, the receiving of the law, the temple worship, and the promises. Now, whenever you come across a list in Scripture, always be alert to the fact that it is never a random list, just what he thought of on the spur of the moment. That is a list of promises that belong to the people of Israel. And sometimes in this text and and throughout these chapters, he's going to mean Israel as as a people. Sometimes he's going to use it as the proper name, the other proper name for Jacob. The son of uh, Isaac, who was himself the son of Abraham. But uh, these are sons. So when he says the people of Israel, he has a half an eye to this sense that the people of Israel were always supposed to behave like an obedient son of God. We touched on that when we, uh, when Jonathan led us in the Lord's Prayer earlier. And so he goes for this. Theirs is the adoption of sons, the glory, the covenants, and so on. And it's not a random list. On the contrary, this is a list of privileges that belongs precisely with the one who came as the Son of God. So theirs are the patriarchs, he says in 5, and from them is traced the human ancestry of the Messiah, the Christ, who is God over all forever praised. And that's not just, again, a random, oh, I'll bid a I've sort of just got carried away. I can remember this tune. It's gone round in my head ever since I sang it last Sunday. Uh, so, God, of, God forever praised. Amen. No, he's very precise. He means, who is God over, over who? Over the Jews? No. Over the Gentiles? No. Over all. What is it, then, that belongs with this identity? of the Son of God. It should have been embodied by the people of Israel, but in fact it's come embodied finally in the person of Jesus. Well, his adoption as sons, his is the divine glory. To him belongs the new covenant. He is the one who's received and expressed the perfect will of God. He is the one who is now for us the new temple in whom we worship. To him belong all the promises And absolutely, as he goes on to say, in terms of human ancestry, to him belong all the patriarchs, the fathers in faith. Something has happened. This event is that the people of God appear to have been cut off. And Paul is bearing witness in these first five verses. Now, if you've ever had anything to do with a... um, a, a crime case, you'll know that it doesn't, or it's not always the way it first looks. My mother, when I was about eight or nine, was uh, shopping in our central, not shopping, uh, um, uh, buying stamps or going to the library or something, it, just in a street which had the central post office and the library in it. Suddenly, a van drew up, three people uh, masked, got out of it, um, ran into the central library, came out again a, a little while later, a few seconds later, with a large bag. Um, and uh, uh, ran off, sorry, uh, the, the van drove off, but as it did so, one of them fell out, um, 
there was a, the sound of a shot, and this one then staggered off and, and ran uh, the opposite direction from where all the crowds were. My, my mother then had to be a witness in the eventual court case. It was actually rag week, and the students were staging a mock scene. But if you don't know that, you can imagine how something looks one, like one thing and turns out to be another. And so, as he goes into verses, verse 6 and following, Paul is concerned to say, look, this isn't what you think, folks. The event would appear to be that the people of Israel have been cut off from God's goodwill and purposes. But let's be clear, it is not as though, verse five, it is, verse 6, it is not as though God's word has failed. Because all along, God's purposes and promises took twists and turns through the people of Israel. Not all who are descended from Israel, Israel the man, Jacob, are Israel the people. He's making a pun. Nor, because they are his, Jacob's descendants, are they all Abraham's children. On the contrary, it is through Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned. Abraham had two children that matter, Isaac and Ishmael. He'd had the promise given to him. And Isaac was the eventual son of the promise, for whom he waited for very many years. But in the meantime, he got tired of waiting for the promise. And so he got together uh, with his uh, wife's serving girl and said, come on, um, my wife's passed it, let's sort this out. And Ishmael was the result. I didn't think it was funny. Um, uh, Ishmael was the result. He hadn't waited for the promise to come to pass. He'd got on and sorted it out himself. He'd not trusted and promised. He'd actually just done it in order to make God's promise, in a sense, come true without God. And so, of course, uh, even though they were both Abraham's children, God said, no, it's going to be through Isaac that your offspring are going to be reckoned. It's not just the natural children. It's not just the genetic heritage but it's the children of the promise who are going to belong to me, because that's how I intended it to be all along. At the appointed time, I will return. Let me remind you of this, he says, and Sarah will have a son. Not only that, it wasn't just one generation, but the next generation. Rebecca's children had one and the same father, our father Isaac. They were twins, Jacob and Esau, and yet before they'd done anything good or bad, in order that God's purpose in choosing might stand, not by works, this is going to be important, this theme, not by works, but by him who calls, promise, she was told, the older will serve the younger. Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. All he's concerned to establish at this point is that it kind of, it, it, the promise moves in a line. It isn't just a straightforward expansion out from the genetic heritage of Abraham. As Paul has said often enough, especially in chapter 4 of Romans up to this point, this thing has, has uh, woven in and out of the history of the people of Israel. So it's, doesn't, it's not the way it looks. Just remember, you can't say, well, the way it looks is we had this promise, the promise now looks to be denied and we're cut off. Remember, says Paul, actually, it was always working its way through carefully, choosing here, but saying no where anyone was trying to force things. So we've had the witness. We've had that review of the facts of the case. 
But now we come to the charge that God has to answer. In verse 14, what then shall we say? Is God unjust? Not at all. Because he says to Moses, I'll have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. If everybody deserves to be written off, then if some get a better result, God has mercy, then the others have no right to complain because everybody deserves to be written off. And that's the verdict that the Old Testament has delivered on humankind generally. Uh, He's just saying, I'm going to have mercy on whom I choose to. Now, technically, that's true. But a little later on, we've got to recognize that Paul is also dealing with something that's a bit harder-edged than that. He covers the same kind of point in verse 16 and 17, but he kind of really draws it out then in verse 18. Because you don't just get the point made in 15, mercy and compassion. You get the other side. God has mercy over here on those on whom he wants to have mercy. But then also, he hardens those whom he wants to harden. And that's a bit we don't want to hear. Because surely, that precisely fits into the charge that's been made. If he's hardening people, if he's hardening anyone, then people are within their rights to complain. They are within their rights to say, God is unjust. And so reasonably enough, Paul, ever ever the good Jewish lawyer, goes straight uh, into verse 19 and says, okay, that's the argument, let's hit it, Let's, let's go straight for it. Uh, one of you will say to me, then why does God still blame us? And us here means the Jews. For who can resist his will? How can God harden whom he wills if those whom he wills to harden are us, the Jews, and then blame us? Now we're getting closer to the heart of this to the bit that if you were listening carefully or if you know Romans 9, kind of makes us all go a bit uh, uncomfortable at this point. We're getting closer to it. And Paul, in response to this one of you in verse 19, has two answers. The first one is um, what you might call the, the steamroller answer. Who are you to talk back to God? expands on it. Shall what is formed say to him who formed it, why did you make me like this? Verse 21, uh, there was this long tradition of talking about the people of God as a, as a clay pot formed in the hand of the potter God. Why did you make me like this? Is there, is there a right on the part of the pot to talk back to the potter? No, of course there isn't. Uh, and it's a steamroller answer in that it's simply, uh, if you're appealing to an issue of justice, it says, Who are you to talk about justice? You have not a clue what justice is about. I'm just going to steamroller that issue out of the way. And at one level, that's entirely understandable. It's correct. But Paul knows that we're looking for a different kind of answer too. And so, as I said, he offers a second answer. And it comes through in verse 22. I do just hope that without my notes I can explain this. 
What if God, choosing to show his wrath and make his power known, bore with great patience the objects of his wrath prepared for destruction? And we, at the moment we read that, panic. How could it be that God prepared anything for destruction? How is God going to take responsibility to, for, not only for destroying a people, but actually saying, I prepared them for destruction? Well, it's going to be a big point, but what if he, if he, uh, did the, if he bore with patience those objects in order, verse 23, to make the riches of his glory known to the object of his mercy whom he prepared in advance for glory, even to us. Now, us at this point has changed its meaning. We can tell from the verse 24. Paul at this point is now talking about Jews and Gentiles mixed up within the new people of God whom God has called. Not, to use the language earlier on, and it'll be true later, not by works, but by promise. So what if he's chosen to show his wrath and make his power known, and born with great patience the objects of his wrath prepared for destruction, the people of Israel, in order to make the riches of his glory known to the objects of his mercy, which is now the new people of God from the Jews and the Gentiles? Well, I'll come back to that, but just register what's going on for the next few verses. All he's doing, he know, I guess he knows it's such a, a shocking point, that he wants us to hear very clearly how it's guaranteed, how it's simply worked out in Scripture. And so he goes back to two of the great prophets, Hosea and Isaiah, and says, look, let's get this new people business sorted out so that you understand the Jews and the Gentiles thing. As he says in Hosea, I will call them my people who are not my people, and I will call her my loved one who is not my loved one. And it will happen in the very place where it was said to them, you are not my people, they will be called sons of the living God. There's a new people coming in. Then Isaiah. Hosea has put it in the positive, the new people coming in. Isaiah is the one responsible for more of the negative. They maybe look like sands of the sea, but actually there's only going to be a tiny number left. For the Lord will carry out his sentence with speed and finality. Verse 29, it's just as he said previously. Unless the Lord Almighty had left us descendants, all we are entitled to is the same fate as happened to Sodom and to Gomorrah. They were wiped out because of their wickedness. So both sides uh, are expressed there. The, the positive, the side we want to hear about mercy and compassion, that's in Hosea. And also the negative, the, God, the judgment of God, because Isaiah was living through a time when, people's God were, when God's people were a complete waste of space. But now let's go back, because with that kind of expansion of this us in verse 24, what are we going to say about this prepared for destruction? Well, of course, we kind of would like, and maybe you've heard the arguments every now and then, Maybe you say, well, maybe people prepared themselves for destruction. Maybe it's actually finally about their choices. Maybe God is simply letting people make their own choices and uh, then he's carrying out his judgment on those who kind of prepared themselves for destruction and so they deserved his wrath. You can't get away with it. Simply not what it says. We have to reckon with this fact that although he's not talking about every individual member of the nation of Israel, because he himself was was an outstanding exception, of course, he is saying that the nation of Israel, in ways that we may not fully understand, was prepared 
for destruction by God. The charge is a very deep and strong one. But as we come to the verdict in verses 30 onwards, we start to see actually that there is an answer. What then shall we say? That's the appeal for a verdict. It's the, almost literally. Well, what then is going to be said at the end of all this? And because he uses words that we may know from other parts of Romans, we tend not to see the power in this particular usage of the words, that the Gentiles who didn't pursue righteousness have obtained it, a righteousness, that's a being in the right with God, that is by faith. But Israel, who, who did pursue it, they pers- boy, did they pursue it hard, has not attained it. Why not? And this is what matters. Because they pursued it not by faith, but as if it were by works. They stumbled over the stumbling stone. What Paul is saying here is that God's purposes encompass a scale of activity that makes our minds boggle. What he's saying is that it was in God's purposes that a whole people should be given the revelation of his will, perfect, good, holy, and true as it is, that we call it the law, and he's covered that in a number of the chapters before chapter 9. That They should be given this. But then the sin within them, hurling themselves at this good and perfect and and godly revelation of, of his purposes, actually just makes everything worse. As, as Jonathan spoke about this morning, the law tells you that there's something wrong, but it doesn't give you the solution to help you get out of the problem. Not only is it uh, uh, incompetent to save you, it makes things much worse. And this is the, the prepared for destruction point. What God was about was using the law as a kind of funnel, driving his people into a deeper and deeper recognition of sin until the day comes when he acts in judgment on that sin in the person of Jesus Christ. And he is content to prepare that people, not every individual, remember, because we're talking about a people, a system, a way of doing things. He's prepared to do that to the people in order that the world shall eventually understand that no system of religion, no system of being good is ever going to save anybody. Think of it like this. It's not just that the people had the law and they sinned against the law by, say, mixing two types of cloth that they wore when they weren't supposed to. That's not the real point at this point in the argument. At this point, what really matters in this theme of being prepared for destruction is that even if they kept that rule and avoided wearing two types of cloth, and Lord have mercy on you if you're wearing polycotton tonight, even if they kept that rule, because they were keeping it as a law as works, seeking to please God because they ticked a box, 
It was precisely the attitude that was wrong. God wanted a relationship. And if it seems a bit kind of antique to think of it in those terms, I've got friends like this, so have you. People who are good. All of us have got friends who are much better people than we are, I assume. It's so annoying. But if you ask those friends of yours, why will you not turn to Jesus Christ and throw yourself on the mercy of God, then whatever their answer is to that question tells you what sin really is in the world. It's not that they're good and and kind of that they they don't do as many bad things. They don't kind of fail in the the box-ticking exercise. It is the very fact that trying to be good, aside from an appeal to God's mercy, is the very essence of sinfulness in the world. And that's what the law did. It drove them, it kind of like, like cattle, into a pen. It said, this is your problem. You keep trying to do it the wrong way. And if God prepared that whole business for destruction against the day when Jesus Christ would come to sort it out, then we have an answer. We have an answer that tells us that wherever we are in the world, whenever we are in human history, no system of religion, no system of being good is ever going to work. Only the mercy of God is what we need. What do we do with all of that? Well, I suspect that so often we we say to God, uh, as though we're doing him some kind of favor, we we think we've just had Easter after all, haven't we? And there's the cross and resurrection stuck in history, and we're going to do you a favor, God, by making our response to it. And it's, it's just stuck there as a little island in history. And we in our day... Got to get through tomorrow and the rest of our evening in the light of, of the cross and resurrection. Nothing wrong with that. Those are true. But they're tiny. We gather tonight in the name of a God whose purposes have encompassed thousands upon thousands of years of human history. That's who we're here for. It's like a mighty train rushing down the centuries. It's not static at all. God invites us, indeed commands us, to get on that train. And in case we miss the point, he holds up to us the the danger of the Jews. Not as individuals, don't get me wrong, I'm not in any way saying anything about individual Jewish people for whom St. Paul stands as the great beacon, because that's what he was, Jewish. But the, the, the system the business of being Jewish, of having the law. It's all there so that the whole world will learn that that's no use if you do things the wrong way. And every religion in the world is trying to do things the wrong way. The only way to get on that train is to appeal to the mercy of God in Jesus Christ. And that way, we get on the train, we find ourselves part of the mighty purposes of God in history. It will not be enough to say, well, I'm just reacting to this little island moment of cross and resurrection, and the rest of it doesn't really matter. If God has those purposes down thousands of years of history, do you think he's content for you just to do what you were doing until you met Christ, but now you're doing it with Christ, and that's a bit nicer? 
course not. You and I are on that train. Actually, there's two lines. <laughs> and there's a very, very powerful train heading the other way too. We better get out of the way because that's just going to knock over anyone who tries to do things the wrong way. There's only one train going in the direction we want to go in. And that's our decision. But once we've made that decision, let's not kid ourselves that that's everything done and dusted. We are part of this extraordinary story. God has not consigned every Jewish person to hell. Of course he hasn't. But neither does he say that, actually, we, we shouldn't engage in mission with Jewish people because in a perverse kind of anti-Semitism that goes the rounds in Christian circles these days, we say, of all the peoples in the earth, the Jewish people are the only ones we won't go to with the message of Jesus Christ. How absurd. There is no answer except the mercy of God shown in Jesus Christ. So let us go to all peoples. But let's thank God that his purposes, as we gather here tonight, stretched over all those thousands of years. And he has not stopped stretching, and he will not until he brings it all to completion. And you and I will know a glory that is, as is elsewhere said, immeasurably more than all we can ask or conceive. It's taken a long time. That happens, I'm afraid, when I don't have notes, but let's pray together. Lord God, we are here in your presence, and it astonishes, amazes, astounds us that your purposes should be so great for humankind that you will do such amazing things, that you will drive whole cultures to despair, and you will bear in the person of Jesus Christ, your Son, all the failure, the rejection, the sin, the judgment, the death that we deserve. Give us grace, we pray to live out your purposes in a glad and victorious acknowledgement of all that Jesus Christ has done for us, not only for us, but to open up the whole of all the peoples of this planet to your grace. And out of the death and judgment of Jesus, as out of the death and judgment of Jesus, has come resurrection life. So we do pray that out of the wrath and death and judgment on a whole people who are in truth still dear to you, there may come good news. And we may know ourselves to be a people of Gentile and also of Jew until the day comes when Christ shall be all in all and we shall fall at his feet. Amen.